I think Syrians have different answers when they're asked, you know, what does justice mean for you? I think most Syrians, even though they do not dare to say it anymore, the Syrians who live in Syria, know that there can be no justice as long as the perpetrators of these crimes against humanity remain in power and remain free. Even if we were to turn a blind eye to that, I think it just teaches everybody else that, you know, you take the expression in the literal form that you can get away with murder. Welcome to the Syria Trials, episode 11, Justice. In this episode, the 11th and final episode of this season of the Syria Trials, I am joined by the presenter of the Arabic series of our podcast, Christina Cajado. Hi, Fritz. Hi, Christina. How are you doing? I'm good. We are approaching the end of the season. Yeah, indeed. How do you feel about that? Oof, that's a good question. I feel like we've worked through a lot and yet there's still so much more to say. So it's you know good to know that we have a second season. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. The subject that we're addressing in both the Arabic and the English series are so complex and so multifaceted and multilayered that no matter how much we talk about them, there is still so much left and so much to say. How has this season been for you? Has it shown you any new ways of thinking or? Actually, plenty. I've been thinking a lot about the fact that before the work on this series, I would think of justice as something that's not very tangible, that's very big. And that because it's not very tangible, seeking it or achieving it is an impossible matter especially in the Syrian context. And as we mentioned in the first episode, I think we spoke a little bit about the concept of justice for people who lived under a dictatorship for 50 years. But listening to the witnesses, to the stories, to the testimonies, hearing about the cases that are being worked on at the moment and for the past years, about the efforts of different people who are in different parts of the world, still there, still present, still working hard, connecting also with each other to get the best possible results in the current geopolitical context. All of that has made me not only more informed, but also much more hopeful, actually. Not necessarily hopeful in the sense that I am more confident that I will see Syria the way I would like to see it in 10 years, but confident about the fact that the Syrian people have been through so much, but they still have the willpower, the, the strength, the knowledge, the networks and this desire to get justice for themselves and the people who are still in the country or in exile. You know, I'm happy to hear that from you as a Syrian yourself and having grown up in Syria and looking at this from a different perspective than me as, you know, as a lawyer working on these issues, obviously, like personally, I have to be hopeful. Otherwise, there's no sense in, in, in the work that I do. But it's great to hear this from you especially because I think one thing that we did learn in this season is that what you just said, you know, it doesn't go for everybody. There's definitely some like you that the more that they learn about the justice and accountability efforts that have been undertaking, the more they maybe regain a certain hope and a certain strength. But I think we've also definitely heard that there's a sizable group that is frustrated and that doesn't 
or that isn't able to gain any new hope from these efforts going on. These trials are very important for sure. They help in reaching justice inside and outside Syria and holding the war criminals and those who committed violations against the Syrian people accountable. I believe the trials are beneficial in terms of reaching justice, even for me, someone who lives inside Syria. They help in exposing real criminals or criminals who participated in displacing, killing, kidnapping, detaining or forcibly disappearing Syrians. The trials in Europe of the criminals who committed massacres against the defendless Syrian people are not enough. There must be other and more effective ways and methods to affect the regime and the criminals in general. There is no life without justice. But in real life, justice is absent because some criminals are being punished and others remain free. And so, justice is rarely served. The effect of the trials is minor on the Syrian regime and those who committed massacres against the Syrian people. But we cannot deny that they have some kind of an effect on the Syrian context. In 2023, between this season and next season, we'll probably see a regime-related case going to trial in the Netherlands against a former member of, of the Liva al-Quds Brigade that did a lot of the dirty work for Assad's regime. We will likely see a really significant case going to trial in France against Jamil Hassan and Ali Mamluk. And that will be if it happens in 2023 before season two, which is possible, it will be a trial in absentia without the accused being there, which will open a whole new kind of discussion. This will be the first time that very high, significant individuals from the regime will stand trial without being there in person, but being on trial with all the evidence being presented in public, in Paris, I assume, you know, it's going to be a big one. most important thing, thing for me and for everyone in Syria, in Northwest Syria and in all Syria, that all parties that were involved in the killing, bloodshed, you know, displacement, destructions of Syrian lives will be in the future held accountable for their crimes. All the parties who ruined even one life of the Syrian people. Without any accountability, there is no possibility for a future in Syria. If there will not be justice in Syria, as you see now in Ukraine history, it's, it's repeating itself. The deliberate killing of civilians, of besieging them and cutting off supplies such as food and preventing the entry of medicine, as well as preventing people from expressing their opinion and imprisoning them if they do, are all crimes. But equally, the existence of Bashar al-Assad and not prosecuting him in the international courts is a crime in itself. 
the countries in which these cases are currently taking place are countries that, you know, may have wanted maybe Bashar al-Assad to leave, but like they're not acting to enable that form of political transition that would actually enable a form of a broader form and a more meaningful form of justice for people. And so it's a bit of, you know, like you give a little bit so that people feel like there is something that's happening, something that's going the right direction. But in practice, does it actually change anything? And that's very personal. But in terms of enabling justice and accountability at a larger sense, we're very, very, very far from it. And we're talking about countries who are somehow normalizing relationships with Syria on the side or discussing refugee return. You're discussing these horrendous crimes in court. You have a structured investigation into all of the torture facilities of the Syrian regime. And yet you believe that you can safely send refugees back? I mean, I'm, I'm amazed. I, yeah, I have no word for that. This made me think now of a question, like all these efforts of criminal justice, do you think they directly affect the regime somehow from a legal perspective? And if yes, how? Because this aspect is hard to see sometimes. People say, yeah, cool. It gives me a sense of justice, maybe on a personal level, but the regime is still there. And that's where the frustration comes in. So can you maybe comment on that a little bit? I mean, you know, of course, they do realize in Damascus that these trials are, are going on and that more of those will happen. I don't know, but I assume that they're well informed about it. Assad himself has commented on the Koblenz trial, I think one or two times, you know, in interviews and, and kind of, you know, shoved it to the side and as, as unimportant and just repeating that there is no such thing as torture in Syria. And from a legal perspective, I guess they know that this is, you know, building a legal record against them, against the regime. And then the court decisions that are coming out now are also all looking at each other in the Frankfurt court and in the Berlin court, what they will be doing in the court in, in the Netherlands next year and in Paris and in other places where cases will go to trial. Of course, they will look back at Koblenz and the other decisions that have already been handed down. They may not be direct legal precedents, as in that they can't you know, legally rely on those as additional evidence for a conviction. But it is absolutely contextual information that they will be aware of and look at. And eventually, you know, 100%, when Assad and his top officials will stand trial, and I say when because I, I believe that will happen in the next 10 years, whatever court or tribunal will see that trial, they will look back at these judgments in Koblenz in 21 and 22 and see those and recognize those as the first ones that officially determined that this regime, when they violently suppressed the peaceful revolution, committed crimes against humanity. Absolutely. You sound very confident when you say that Assad will go to trial. <laughs> and for a lot of people, this sounds very unrealistic because they would say he and his family and the people around him are still in power. Syria is destroyed economically, politically, socially. The sense of justice is very absent. The prospects are very dark. And you say he's going to go to court. Do we have any historical cases or examples in which a dictator, for example, or a war criminal in certain stages was maybe even part of international negotiations. And then we saw them put on trial. 
they have something to base your hope on. <laughs> yeah, I think that is that is why I say it so confidently. The historical comparison that I like to sort of study is the one with the former leaders in the former Yugoslavian republics, especially in Serbia, the Bosnian Serbian leader Karadzic and the Serbian leader Milosevic at the time in the 90s. I mean, they were basically taking part in political negotiations as the war was still raging. When the, the massacre, for example, in Srebrenica was happening, when the peace agreement in Dayton was signed, and the years after, they were participating in these political processes. They were attending international summits. People were talking to them, accepting them for the time being as their equals which gave them a certain confidence in thinking, oh, we're back. But history teaches us that political transitions can happen in funny ways, can happen in, in sudden ways. And all of a sudden, Milosevic was arrested, basically by his own people, and extradited to The Hague, right? And stood trial. And fortunately, he died before the, the judgment came out. But same goes for Karadzic. I mean, that guy had to basically go into hiding for, what is it, like more than 10 years, only to be eventually arrested and also extradited to stand trial. Now, that was, what, 25 years after the massacre in Srebrenica? I think the fact that we are seeing this political process going into a direction where Assad is successfully, to a certain extent, normalizing this regime and participating again in international affairs does not mean that the justice efforts will be muted and won't continue to pursue the goal of eventually holding this guy accountable. That can happen. And I think it will happen before the end of the year 2032. Wow. What you're saying makes me think of the importance actually of taking a deep, deep breath when it comes to justice, especially transitional justice for societies that have suffered so much and so many atrocities and to not expect that singular cases by themselves will do much but that if there is a strategy and if there is collective efforts and if there is a logic in that strategy and collective effort things can go somewhere what i would like to see is a lot of the actors that were there from very early on take a step back now and strategize because for the last 10 years what we've been doing is really reacting killing of protesters bombing of hospitals the use of chemical weapons forced displacement security council resolution this general assembly resolution that we couldn't breathe we couldn't strategize properly it felt wrong to sit and draw a strategy of what you want to do in the next five years because you were always on the kind of back foot trying to kind of an emergency human rights response if you like now that things have calmed down for better or worse. It allows us now to really think and reflect, okay, where am I going? We need new blood. We need people to sit back and say, okay, where should we go? In order for things to be now on the long term. But I also see how that can be very difficult from a survivor's perspective or from the perspective of families who are still looking for missing people whom they haven't seen for, I don't know, 10 years and who have no idea if their loved ones are still alive. So I think that it's only natural that if we speak to such people about taking a deep breath and being hopeful and strategizing and 
seeing how all of those efforts that are happening now can lead somewhere, it's only natural that their reaction would be dismissive. Because at the end, what they need is very, very immediate. So telling them that, look, maybe in 10, 20 years, something is going to happen, a big shift is going to happen. I think it sounds like a joke to many people. And righteously so. It does make sense to me that they, they would have such a harsh reaction to it. And I think from there comes this idea that Syria is just a lost case. We will never get our lives back. We will never see the country the way we would like it to be. The Assad is going to be there forever. What I see is I see a widespread acceptance of the continued injustice and lack of any form of transitional justice for the regime's crimes. And that's kind of dangerous because these low expectations also means that people become cynical or they become lazy or they don't want to pursue it anymore. Or, for example, when pro-regime militiaman is arrested, for example, in Europe, then also a lot of potential witnesses are thinking, you know, what good would it do if I go and give my testimony? Nothing good is going to come out of this anyway. He's still sitting in his palace in Damascus. And what is my tiny little experience going to contribute to justice? And that cynicism is very difficult. And I think that that's, that's a profound long-term impact that the regime's violence has made in Syrian society. And that's going to be very difficult to break through, I think. Also because, you know, really large lofty ambitions of tribunals in The Hague and the ICC have, of course, fallen flat. So for a lot of Syrians, they basically have accepted this, you know, of course, grudgingly. And they've moved on and they've forgotten about any form of justice. How effective is what we're actually doing? And I don't know that we have an answer to that. It's an important question to ask yourself when this is what you're doing, in part because you know criminal proceedings target only individuals. Does the political system at the national or international level actually allow you to pursue the cases that you would like to see being pursued? Does this actually entail any form of social change? And at least on my side, I, I have doubts, you know, about all of these. It's not like I have an answer. I wouldn't put a time frame on things. You know, when, when we speak with a lot of countries and they're like, oh, but how long would this take? How long, what long would that take? And it's like, it depends what you want to get out of it. If convictions is what you're after, yes, they take a long time. But the moment you're issuing a statement that you're starting a case or holding X to account, you're already achieving it. So with some of the initiatives I'm working on and they're like, what's your time frame for this? This, this takes 10 to 15 years. I was like, no, it takes tomorrow. If the eventual goal is to hold Assad and his top officials accountable and that still takes 10 or 20 years, that is unacceptable. That should have been the case already. But I do believe that that is realistic. And what happens between now and then, there's a whole space that can and will be filled with small steps and efforts that hopefully will satisfy some of these survivors and families. If we look at what the opportunities in that are or might be, then I think that if states and international organizations start talking again with Assad in a different way, there might be space to ensure that the justice file, with this whole dossier of court decisions that are coming out now, will have a place on that table and that these states will be able to say, okay, we're hearing that you want to rebuild your country and you want to rebuild your relationships. Let's talk about it. But here is the justice file. And that's not going anywhere because the courts have spoken. Now, if you want A, B or C, you, you're going to have to be 
straight with the families. You're going to have to release political prisoners and you're going to have to make real steps that show that it's not one-dimensional. We're not going to just do whatever you want. You're going to have to do something back if you want to have a seat at this table. We have to understand how cruel this world is. And by understanding that, we know that we will not get everyone. A lot of those guys will get away with what they've done. I believe that true justice is in prevention. We create a system that prevents this from happening again. How do we do that? By practicing justice, practicing the pursuit of justice. We do this and then we understand. How do you understand silence? By not talking for a good fair amount of time, where you think and look at the sky and just listen. And then you understand the importance of silence. I believe that we did not practice justice for a very, very, very long time. We lived in a country that had no institutions whatsoever, including the judicial system. It was a joke, it was a big joke. So we lost faith in those institutions. Now it's time to understand that there are systems that might help us get justice, but also we need to understand that those systems, and that's, it's, a, it's an integral part of them, that they have flaws and they have limitations and they will not get us everything we want. It's not a magic wand. This concept that comes back time and again also in, in my work in international criminal justice, which is so-called transitional justice. And everybody always uses that concept, that, that term. But, you know, my question is, what does it actually mean, right? If you had to even define it for yourself, what does it actually mean to you? I think it's a process in which a society that has been witnessing work crimes, crimes against humanity and different kinds of atrocities find its way to, again, live together and heal collectively while building their society in the way that they wish it is. And I think in this definition, there are so many complex aspects. What kind of society Syrians want? Do we have this vision or idea? Do we agree on this vision? How can such a process happen while the regime is in power? Do we wait for it to stand trial in 10 years, as you said, and then we sit and talk about how we want to move on? If we do not wait, is it possible for, for a large part of the society to move on with it? Like sort of start a parallel process where there's the legal system doing its work and the, the court cases happening, the trials, and then in parallel, a process of healing and rebuilding happens. I have no idea, really. And I think these are very big questions. To be very honest, what we have achieved, it's very important, but it's very limited. We know it's not justice. It's like, you know, maybe the first step on this way. You know, I think the real justice for the Syrian, it's at least to see a real political will international to push for a real political solution, a real change 
to democracy. And then from there, maybe justice will be achieved step by step in our country, in Syria, when we are all there. I only have doubts that criminal justice alone, and especially under universal jurisdiction, is a complete form of justice, because it isn't. It's a partial, incomplete form of justice, that it is the justice that we have access to today, and it's the one through which we're trying to facilitate very, very small changes in the legal space and in the social space. Another point is that there is no particular solution to what's happening in Syria. It's been happening since more than 10 years now, and there is no one solution. So if I would say how I would perceive the matter, it's just the different efforts that people are doing in their different places. All of them collectively can actually come up with something that at this particular moment, because again, we're working on cases that have atrocities that have happened seven years, eight years ago, but there are current injustices that are happening against people. There are people who are trying to provide humanitarian aid. There are people who are trying to support refugees in the countries of residence where they are. There are people trying to support families. There are people trying to work on education. That all matters, and that's all a part of the solution. So if legal remedies is a part of it as well, but it's not the only answer. It's not the solution. It's one of many. What I think first when I think of transitional justice now in the context of Syria is that we have probably actually hundreds of thousands of people who are hungry every day in Syria, who do not have gas, electricity, whose kids are not safe to go to school, who are very worried about their day-to-day -day income, let alone all the other political and societal aspects. So when we talk about not being safe, when your basic needs are not met, you don't have space to think about how to heal or how to come to terms with the recent or a more distant past, how to look into the future. And I think for Syria, it's very important that we have that in mind. The rebuilding starts with feeding myself, with being able to feed my children, with knowing that I'm safe, I'm warm, I'm full and I'm not thirsty. And I think this is a very big priority and I cannot imagine any transitional justice without this component. Justice, justice in Syria would mean being able to return to back to my home, my life, to get my life back. Every family, every person need to get his rights and get back to their home, their home safely. My home, for me to get back to Aleppo, to see my neighborhood, to see my neighbors, you know, to get my life back without any threat, without fearing the police, without fearing uh, anyone, any official from the government, you know, to get uh, those who are disappeared in the prisons, to see them again alive, and then, or those who were killed to know, to know their destiny. This is home for me. This is home for me. I hear a lot of people say that um, I want my life back, uh, be it my life in Syria or the way I lived in Syria, my land, my house. And I think 
although it's a very painful thought to have, but I think that as long as we cling to how our lives were back in Syria years ago, and we say that unless I get them back, I will not be able to live my life fully and be able to be fulfilled in my life or get a sense of justice. I think it's important to understand and realize that a lot has changed in the past 10 years and things keep changing every day, which means that we probably, most likely, none of us will get anything back in the sense that even if, let's say, Assad stands trial, people get to come back to the country, they will find the country different. Its streets, the way people are, the social interactions, the political climate, everything. Because the history of these years cannot just be erased and we say, okay, now we start from where we left things. And I think that once we let go of the idea of I want things back, it will be easier maybe to look into the future. I can see how that is very difficult, especially when people have lost maybe, as I said, their sense of self and sense of identity, sense of belonging. So obviously you want to go back to what made you feel you, to what made you uh, belong somewhere. But I think we just need to reimagine our sense of self and the ways we belong in, in different places, including Syria. We hope that you enjoyed the first season and that you found in those episodes what fueled your curiosity, gave you information and context about Syria, justice for Syria and Syrians and the trials that are happening. And we invite you to stay tuned for season two. I'm Christina Caradou. Thank you for listening. If you're also an Arabic speaker, do check out the Arabic series of the Syria trials presented by myself. I'm Fritz Streif. Thank you for listening to The Syria Trials. We'll be back in the fall of next year, 2023, with season two. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at 75podcasts or email us at 75podcasts at pm.me with any thoughts, comments or questions.